you shall have no other gods before me. This is Yahweh speaking. You shall have no other gods before me, he commands. What does it mean to have a God? On one hand, to have a God other than Yahweh could be to literally possess objects, monuments of wood, stone, metal, whatever, and to worship those things, or to call a public block of wood or metal or stone your God and bow down and worship these things as the Israelites did with the golden calf. They didn't each possess it in their home. It wasn't a household God. It was a public God. Dan and Beersheba, these golden calves, these abominations to Yahweh set up at the north and the south of the kingdom of Israel. To have a God could be to bring one of these items into your home and have it that way. Or it could be to own a public thing. To have a God could also be to engage in religious ceremonies or rituals offering praise and petition to a God other than Yahweh. There doesn't need to necessarily be a block of wood or metal or stone involved. Those who worship Allah are worshiping a false god. They're having a god, Allah, other than Yahweh. Or any other god that we could think of. And there are many out there. The prohibition against having a god prohibits at least that. Not less than that. You are certainly forbidden, forbidden to have a block of wood or metal or stone that you offer praise and petition to, you are certainly prohibited from owning as your God any God but Yahweh. That's the least that it means. At least that. However, deeper than that, when we come to understand what it means to have a God, biblically speaking, we need to understand this concept. That there is worship at the heart level underneath our ceremonial, visible, ritualistic worship. The New Testament especially brings this idea into clear focus. To cite just a couple of clear examples, we read in Ephesians 5.5 that covetousness is idolatry. So so Ephesians 5.5 is not talking about worshipping Allah or bowing down before a block of wood or whatever. It's saying you covet something, you feel like you can't be happy without something you desire it that much, that you, you have that strong desire for this thing, this inordinate desire for this thing, you're worshiping a false god. Or Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19, where it talks about people whose god is their belly. Obviously, those people in Philippians didn't literally extract their own stomach set it up somewhere and bow down to it clearly so what it's talking about is making your appetites ultimate prioritizing your cravings this is what it means to have your belly be your god there is worship then underneath our worship 
This is the way that the, the scripture talks about worship. There are outward forms of worship to be sure and those are prohibited with respect to any other so-called deity but Yahweh. But we have to understand that there's worship underneath our worship. And so, in Old Testament times, someone may bow down before Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech or whoever these false gods may be. And so there's a pretense of worshipping Baal or Ashtoreth or Molech. But what they're really after is a good harvest. Or what they're really after is bearing children. Or what they're really after is wealth. You understand? This is the way the New Testament develops the idea of idolatry. To make it hit a little bit more close to home. This would include the outward, visible worship of Yahweh motivated by something else underneath. We just came back from a conference on the prosperity gospel. Trust in Jesus and your bank account will be in the black. Trust in Jesus and your diseases will be gone. Trust in Jesus and your life will be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Nonsense. And in fact, more than nonsense, idolatry. Because there's an outward pretense of worshipping Yahweh. An outward pretense of making Him ultimate. But think about it. What are you really after when you're worshipping Yahweh to get money? What are you really after when you're worshipping Yahweh to get health? What are you really after? So by way of introduction to this morning's sermon, whatever you ascribe ultimate worth to, that is what you worship. The word worship literally means, when you trace its etymology, worth-ship. It's been smoothed out to sound better in English. But etymologically, the word worship is derived from worth-ship. Whatever we ascribe ultimate worth to is what we worship. And so when we hear God say, thundering from Sinai in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's not merely saying, don't go bow down before that golden calf. He's not merely saying, don't run after Baal. He's not merely saying, don't run after Molech or Ashtoreth or Allah. He's also saying, don't come trying to pretend you're worshipping me when you're really after something else. Worship me. Worthship. God is after our hearts. God is not merely after a prostrated posture before Him, bowing in homage and at least a, with at least a pretense of adoration. God is not after you simply showing up here on Sunday and singing, holy, holy, holy. 
God is not merely after you coming and listening to the message and shaking my hand after and saying, good message, pastor. God is not merely after you getting dressed up in your Sunday best and coming and pretending to worship Yahweh when something else is more ultimate in your heart. God is after your worship. Not less than this, what we're doing. Not less than showing up and singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our songs shall rise to Thee. Not less than that. Not less than prioritizing the assembling together of the saints as we're commanded to in His Word. Not less than pouring over the Scriptures, studying them, trying to learn what they say. Not less than bowing before Him in adoration and in homage. Not less than these outward, visible, tangible things, but more, much more, your worship. Worthship. We need to give worthship to Yahweh. What has your heart? What has your heart? If it's something other than Yahweh, it's idolatry. People have said, what do you think about when you're alone? What do you do when it's just you? When no one's looking over your shoulder? Where do you go? What do you want? What are you after? Brothers and sisters and friends, if it's anything other than Yahweh, it's idolatry. We need to learn to worship God as an end in itself and not as a means to an end. We need to learn that as Augustine said, man's happiness is God Himself. We're not worshiping God to get anything else. We're worshiping God to get God. Give me only God and I'll be satisfied. We need to learn that anything but worshiping God as an end in itself is in fact idolatry. If the worship of Yahweh is just a stepping stone for you to get to that thing that you ascribe worship to, something else other than Him, and you're stepping on Yahweh's shoulders as it were so you can reach that thing, idolatry. We need to learn to worship God as an end in itself. We mustn't worship Yahweh ultimately to get a better career or a better spouse. Or, pardon me, not a better spouse. I hope you don't worship God to get a better spouse. A good spouse. Right? If you're a single person, you don't come to, you don't come to church and pretend to worship Yahweh so that you can find a good spouse. You mustn't worship Yahweh to get health or comfort or blessings. Listen, you shouldn't even worship Yahweh to go to heaven. We must worship Yahweh because we can't stand to think of anything else or anyone else being perceived as more glorious than Him. We must worship Yahweh because we can't stand to think of Him not receiving the worship 
that He's due. That that would just vex us and trouble us. That that would give us no rest to see false worship happening in our hearts. Now, as we'll see, it is good for us to worship Yahweh. And it's not wrong for that fact to enter into our consideration. In fact, God Himself motivates us to worship Him with that very fact that it is good for us to worship Him. One example, Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You see the Lord there saying, as it were, it will be good for you to worship me and bad for me if you don't. So turn and worship. It's not wrong for us that, to enter into our thinking. But that needs to be second, third, fourth, wherever. First and foremost. Here's the height of Christian spirituality. What Paul says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Or as he says elsewhere, to desire simply that Christ be honored, whether by life or by death. You see, to care not how the clay fares so long as the potter receives the glory that he is due from his creation. To recognize, has not the potter no right over the clay to make of it what he wills? Even if that be me. Oh, let his will be done. Let his purpose be accomplished. Let the potter receive the glory. Never mind how it fares with the clay. As John the Baptist said it so eloquently, he must increase, but I must decrease. True Christian spirituality is never mind what happens to me. Oh, that he would increase. We must love and worship Yahweh like that. Ultimate worth is not even our own well-being. We are not even ultimately after our own well-being. Nothing wrong with being after our own well-being. As I showed you right there in Ezekiel 33, that's just one instance. All of these other contrasts in Scripture, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life versus perishing. Right? He who comes to me will never be hungry, will never thirst. So come to me. Nothing wrong with weighing it up and seeking our own well-being. But brothers and sisters and friends, everyone in my hearing, get this. When it comes right down to it, when it comes right down to what is of ultimate worth, God, not you. God, not you. Which means, when it comes down to it, I'm not seeking even my own well-being. 
when it comes right down to it. God. His glory. His exaltation. Whatever that may cost me. Whatever that means for my future. This is true worship. This is the mark of a regenerate heart. Somebody who has experienced the new birth is no longer thinking ultimately about themselves. Is no longer thinking ultimately about any other thing. But is thinking ultimately about God. To be sure there's a mixture of motives. To be sure even Christians, even I struggle with idolatry. But there's an ultimacy and there's a primacy in the regenerate heart that God must be glorified. God must be exalted. We must love and worship Yahweh like that. Anything less is to make something, even ourselves, more ultimate than Him in our thinking and in our acting. We're going to do three things this morning. We're going to look at the fact that it is right to worship Yahweh. Secondly, we're going to look at the fact that it is good to worship Yahweh. And thirdly, we're going to look at the glorious and comforting truth that it is possible to worship Yahweh. So let's start with it is right to worship Yahweh. And we don't have to belabor this point. It's right here in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. What should we do? Should we have other gods before Him? Of course not. It's right here in God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. But what about myself? Nope. But what about wealth? Nope. What about well, my own well-being? Nope. What about the approval of others? Nope. What about my belly? Nope. What about these things that I covet? Nope. Nothing. No other gods before me. We don't need to belabor this point. The rightness of worshiping Yahweh is right here in His law. Here's the logic behind the rightness though. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 21. There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. This is the logic. There is no other God. So whatever else it is that you worship, it's not God. That's the logic behind the rightness of it. It's wrong to declare something to be God that is not God. There is no other God but Him. 1 Corinthians 8 explains it like this. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's a distinction that we need to make, which is properly speaking and improperly speaking. So we might say, how much money did you earn this week? And you might say, I earned 
$1,000 this week. Maybe you earn $1,008.27. And so you said, I earned $1,000. That's improperly speaking. It's an acceptable form of speaking. It's a manner of speaking. But it's not precise. It's not technical. Improperly speaking. It doesn't mean that it's inappropriate. It just means that it's not a technical, precise statement. Improperly speaking, there are many gods. This is the language that the scripture even uses throughout. Improperly speaking, there are many gods. As I mentioned, there's Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, Allah, whatever. Improperly speaking, there are many gods. But Paul is speaking technically and precisely in the passage I just read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says that really... There are no other gods. There are many so-called gods, but really there are no other gods. When, we, when it comes down to it, properly speaking, there is only one God. And so when, when God says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, he's, he's using a manner of speech. There will be many other so-called gods that you're tempted to run after. Don't run after them. You shall have no other gods but me. Properly speaking, there are no other gods to run after. But we go after these so-called gods. But the logic, again, of the rightness of worshipping Yahweh and Yahweh alone is because there's really only Him to worship. There really is only one God. Psalm 96 and verse 5. The gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What are the contrasts implied in that verse? The gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Here are at least two. The idols are worthless. God is of worth. Here's another one. The Lord made the heavens. The idols therefore did not. So you have worthless gods who did not create anything. And then you have a worthwhile creator. This is the distinction that the scripture gives us throughout. Psalm 100 verse 3, which we sang earlier. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. Romans 9, which I've already alluded to. He is the potter, we are the clay. Everything else is the clay. You are, you are either the creator or you are created. There's no other option. You are the creator or you are a created being. So anything else other than the creator that we could worship is a created being. And therefore is not worthy of worship because it is not, by definition, a God. Romans eleven thirty six. 36. From Him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory. This is the logic of the commandment. For from Him are all things. Therefore, to Him are all things. This is the logic of the commandment. It is right to worship Yahweh because He and He alone is God. There actually are no other gods to worship. You worship something else? Well, it's not a god. 
It's just a created thing. That's the logic of the commandment. It is right for us to worship Yahweh. Let's look secondly at this fact that it is good to worship Yahweh. Uh, Let's do this negatively first by investigating the futility of worshiping other gods. Psalm 16 and verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You worship youth, guess what happens? You get old. You worship health, guess what happens? You get sick and you die. You worship money, guess what? You can't take it with you when you go. You worship something that you hope is going to satisfy you, is going to protect you, something that is going to preserve you, something that is going to give you life. And whatever it is, if it's not God, your body ends up six feet down getting eaten by worms and your soul ends up in hell under the wrath of God. What did your money do for you? What did youth ever do for you? What did even the best spouse in the world do to ultimately satisfy you? To ultimately protect you? To preserve you? Even if you have a husband or a wife who would lay down their life for you, it's not always possible. Even if they would give you a heart transplant such that their body would die and your body would continue to live for a while with their heart beating inside of you. Still, that heart will one day stop beating and you will die. There is nothing in this world that can preserve you, that can protect you, that can satisfy you ultimately. So you hope on any of these things, ultimately, you put all your chips in on that hand, on those cards. And what happens is when you get down to the showdown in the end and everyone shows their cards, you lose and you're bankrupt. You're dead. You're in hell. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. It gets worse. It doesn't get better. Thomas Watson said, Other things can no more fill the soul than a mariner's breath or a sailor's breath can fill the sails of a ship. You can huff and puff like the big bad wolf. But you can never fill the sails of a ship with your breath. And you can run after other gods and serve them devotedly. Pursuing comfort. Pursuing marriage. Pursuing career. Pursuing wealth. Pursuing children. Any of these things. 
These are, these are all legitimate ones I just described. You can go the other way. Pursue hedonism. Pursue, pursue all manner of vile wickedness and ungodliness. Seeking just carnal satisfaction here and now. Literally just serving your nerve endings. And the sensations of your body. And it's just as futile as trying to fill the sails of a ship with your breath. I like to listen to country music. Some of you may count that a strike against me. Some of you may be more gracious and allow it as a cultural difference. One of my favorite songs is this line that repeats in the chorus, nothing in this world lasts. What's past is past. Nothing in this world lasts. We try to hang on to it, but we can't. It's futile to go after other things. Oh, but the benefits of worshiping Yahweh. Those, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Oh, but the path of righteous, the path of the righteous is like the dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the noonday sun. I was joking. I think it was with Pastor Chris and a couple of the brothers as we were across in Antigua. We were joking about Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, and John MacArthur's comment that the only way that that could be true is if you're going to hell after this. And we were joking I, that I should write a book called Your Worst Life Now. <laughs> because, because truly, and this is a glorious, it sounds negative, but this is a glorious thought. This is as bad as it gets for me. You understand? Here in this world, corrupted by sin, struggling against the remaining corruption in my own heart, but comforted by the gospel, surrounded by the fellowship of the saints, with this book sitting on my shelf every day, ready to be read when I wake up, unhindered access into the throne room of God through Christ my mediator, ready in the power of the Spirit, to go through whatever this world throws at me. To say with the Apostle, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which doesn't mean, by the way, that you can leap over tall buildings with a single bound. It means that you can suffer want or poverty through Christ who strengthens you. Ready then, with all of these comforts and all of these aids. Yes, there's hardship in this life. But with all of these comforts and with all of these aids, making my way home for heaven, this is actually as bad as it gets for me. It truly is, all jokes aside, my worst life now. With my, with my beautiful wife and my sweet little boys at home. Right? This is actually literally as bad as it gets. And the path of the righteous is like the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the noonday sun. Yes, as Paul says, outwardly we are wasting away. But inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I am. I feel weaker in my body now than I ever did. And I'm only 32. In fact, just gone 32. I know that that outwardly I'm going to waste away more. 
But yes, inwardly I am being renewed day by day. There is sweetness and joy and pleasure that multiplies for the righteous. Those who worship our God. And the logic is like this. Nothing else is God, so don't worship other things. But He is God, so worship Him. From Him come all things. So what would you rather have, a cup of water or a spring of water? Thomas Watson again says, God is not full like a cup. He's full like a spring. So you think that thing is good? Look up at the one who made it. You think this thing is praiseworthy and excellent? Look up at the one who made it. Look behind the beautiful and wonderful things in your life and see Him from whence they flow. And go to Him. Is it excellent? He is more excellent. Is it praiseworthy? He is more praiseworthy. Is it satisfying? He is more satisfying. Is it lovely? He is more lovely. Nothing can fill my heart, satisfy my heart like God can, and nothing can fill your heart and satisfy your heart like God can. There is nothing else that can do it. Oh, but God can. It's not just a message of futility that no other gods can do it. It's a message of fulfillment and, and, and optimism and... I'm at a loss for words here. <laughs> this is not a negative message. Like, don't worship those other gods. They can't satisfy you. This is a positive message. God really can and really will with Himself. <coughs> There was a Latin phrase that came to my mind that I had heard from theologians. Summum bonum. It means chief good or highest good. Many have applied that to God. God is the summum bonum. Anything else is bonum, which is presumably good. God is summum bonum. And as I was reading Thomas Watson this week, he actually mentioned the same phrase and then threw in a few more Latin phrases. And I'll give you just one of them and leave you to read the rest on your own time. Bonum sufficiens. I probably butchered the Latin, but sufficient good. And Watson's comment is this, he that has God has enough. Not only is he <coughs> the highest good, but something could be the best of the options and yet having it you still only have 40% of what you need because maybe the others would have filled you 30%, 20%, 10% so the 40% is the best but having it you still don't have enough God is not just the chief good in that he's a better good than other goods but God is a sufficient good he that has God has enough So it is right to worship Yahweh. And it is good to worship Yahweh. 
Thirdly, it is possible to worship Yahweh. Again, we need to start out negatively here with our guilt and corruption. As I read earlier in the service, 1 John 5.21, keep yourselves from idols, little children. We are all guilty of idolatry. Other things at times and in various ways become ultimate things to us. Though we ought not to, we do make other things more ultimate than Yahweh at times. For Christians, I hope that it's never what I might call hard idolatry. That is the explicit worship of other gods. We read, obviously, of all of these kinds of things in, throughout the Scripture, really, but especially in the Old Testament, these things are so clear. There really are other things that present themselves to us as gods to be worshipped. Anything from literal blocks of wood and stone which have no animating force in them or behind them all the way to demonic powers. These things are real. I just want to read you a chilling verse from 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 27. Moab is at war with Israel and Israel is winning. And then in verse 27, the king of Moab took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. That's a chilling verse because read between the lines. He offered up a human sacrifice and all of a sudden the tables turned against Israel. That wasn't Yahweh doing that. That's the power of demons. There are, there are in, in what we could call hard idolatry, other explicit so-called gods that tempt us to worship them, that tell us we should worship them. And they might be literally just from a block of wood to a demon, somewhere on that spectrum. If you are worshipping any other God but Yahweh, you need to recognize not only the wrongness of your actions. Or let me say it this way. You need to recognize both the wrongness of your actions and the destructiveness of your actions. Because as we've already seen, it is right to worship Yahweh and wrong to worship other gods. It is good for you to worship Yahweh and bad for you to worship other gods. If you're worshiping explicitly, consciously another god, turn away from that. You're certainly guilty as an idolater in that category. But I think many of us are probably like, well, we're not in that category. We're not, we're not bowing down before blocks of wood. You know, we're not worshiping another world god in another world religion. So we're not an idolater. But again, as I've been trying to stress, there's what I might call a soft idolatry described in Ephesians 5.5. Covetousness is idolatry. Feeling like something else is so important that I have to have it. 1 John 5.21, as I just read, little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Philippians 3 and verse 19. Their God is their belly. Many have observed that we can recognize idolatry in our lives if we would sin to get it or if we would sin when we don't get it. Whatever the it might be. So if you would sin to get comfort or sin if you don't get comfort, comfort's an idol. If you would sin to get money or sin if you don't get money, money's an idol. And the logic in that statement is this. If you're going to break God's law in order to get something else, then obviously that other thing is more important to you than God and obeying God. So it's a self-validating statement. It can't be otherwise. And here's where I think a lot of us are guilty. Even as Christians, this idolatry can creep into our hearts. I was convicted at the recent conference we were at for 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world. And I just, it struck me to the heart that, yeah, my heart can so easily become enamored with the things around me. The, the, either just the fleeting things, the temporary things, or even the sinful things. And even if you're not sort of jumping all the way in, it's like you've got one foot planted firmly on God's word and then like maybe dipping at least one toe into something else. This is often the way that this idolatry works in our lives where we're not consciously, explicitly repudiating the worship of Yahweh. We're maybe not even consciously making something else on par or more important to God. But there's a mixture. And our hearts are pulled away from the ultimacy of God towards something else. Thomas Watson again said, Dry wood is not more prone to take fire than our corrupt nature is to indulge in idolatry. In other words, we're at least as prone, if not more prone, to take to idolatry as dry wood is to take to fire. It's always right there, ready for the spark. John Calvin said, Our idols are, or pardon me, our hearts are an idol factory. It's not one thing, it's the next. We're always churning out new ways to distract ourselves from the pure and undivided worship of Yahweh. So we are all, to some extent, and at least in some sense, idolaters. We have to recognize our guilt and corruption. When this sets settles down upon us and the conviction hits home in our hearts we start to realize how bad we actually are when we really think about all that's been said this morning and then take an honest look at our hearts we start to realize how bad we actually are We might think something like this. Would God have me? 
If you're not yet trusting in Christ, you may be thinking along those lines and wondering, would God have me? Or even if you are a Christian, you might be thinking and wondering, will will God keep me? A thousand times yes. This is what the cross of Christ screams to us. A thousand times yes. Jesus came because... We are not worshipers. If we were all worshipers, do you realize there would never have been a cross? Jesus came because we are not worshipers. He came in order to forgive us for our idolatry and make us worshipers. In the new covenant, God pardons us for the wrongness of our idolatry helps us with the rightness of worshiping Yahweh and welcomes us into the goodness of worshiping Him. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a glorious promise of the new covenant. In the midst of the idolatry Of Israel, God says this, Ezekiel 36 and verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's a promise of the new covenant. That's what God did for idol worshippers in Christ. He promises to come in and sprinkle clean water. Washing. This is... certainly symbolic of our new birth the qualitative cleansing that we experience when God gives us a new heart that thought is very dominant in this passage here in Ezekiel 36 but certainly at least implied is also a reconciliation of relationship to him God's not just going to make us clean and keep us at a distance but, but implied here at least and stated explicitly elsewhere is that our relationship will be reconciled to Him through that same covenant. Here's how it works. We've sinned. We haven't lived the way that we ought to. We've broken all of God's laws, including the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. 
we deserve God's wrath for our sin, and we cannot, by our obedience, merit acceptance in His eyes. We can't measure up to His standard. And so, God promises here to do something about that. And what He did was sent Jesus Christ, His Son, into the world to live a worshiping life for idolaters. That His worshiping would be imputed to us who have not worshipped as we are. And the punishment that we deserve for our idolatry was poured out upon Christ Jesus on the cross so that there's no more wrath, no more condemnation hanging over our heads for breaking this commandment. And so legally, God accepts us on the basis of what Christ Jesus did for us. But there's also this qualitative change which I mentioned. Which is that He's going to sprinkle clean water, give us a new heart, put His Spirit within us to cause us to walk in His statutes. And He's going to cleanse us from all our idols. So in other words, God's not just going to legally pardon us for our idolatry, for Christ's sake, but God is actually going to change us and make us stop being idol worshippers and make us be true, genuine, sincere, devoted worshippers of Him. That's all loaded right here in this passage. Ezekiel 36, 22-27. What glorious, glorious truth it is that not only can the wrongness of our idolatry be forgiven, but that there's help in the rightness of Yahweh worship. By this new birth that God has given us, hearts that want to worship Him, and by His Spirit who works in us and alongside us to help us offer to Him the worship that we ought to. And obviously here there's, a, there's an invitation as well as a command, but I say it as an invitation to worship Him. Because, as we saw, it is good for us to worship Him. It's a privilege to worship Him. So it's not just, it's not just like you ought not to do otherwise, and He's going to help you do the right thing, but it's what a privilege that in and through Christ Jesus in the New Covenant, we can come and worship Him. He's going to give us new hearts, put His Spirit within us to help us worship Him. So it is right to worship Yahweh. It is good to worship Yahweh. And because of Christ Jesus in the new covenant, it is possible to worship Yahweh. In conclusion, it is crucial that we get this right as we endeavor after God honoring obedience throughout the course of our lives. Because idolatry is the root sin. The root sin. Martin Luther said you have to break the first commandment before you break the other nine. I'll leave you to think about that. I'm all over that this afternoon. But I think it's absolutely correct. You've got to break the first commandment before you break any of the other nine. So settle this issue, brothers and sisters. Settle this issue. As Joshua challenged the Israelites so long ago, so I'll challenge you today. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
Settle the issue in your heart and in your mind. Who or what are you living for? Comfort, prestige, respect, power, career advancement, sexual gratification, intimacy, friendship. What? Allah? Baal? What? Settle it. Settle it in your mind. What is your life about? Who is your life about? What are you ready to sacrifice for? Who are you ready to sacrifice for? What are you ready to or who are you ready to reprioritize things for? Who or what is going to give shape to your time? Who or what is going to give shape to your money? Who or what is going to give shape to your energy levels? And the energy outputs and expenditures that you make on a daily basis. Who or what is going to drive and give shape to these things? Who or what is ultimate? Who or what are you ready to suffer for? Who or what are you ready to say, it doesn't matter what happens so long as I give ultimate worth to X, whatever X may be. Settle that issue in your minds. Settle that issue in your hearts. And obviously we know the right answer here from God's word. It is right and it is good. And in Christ Jesus, it is possible to worship Yahweh. As Joshua pointed out prior to making that challenge, I likewise want to point out to you today also that God called Abraham while he and his fathers were worshipping other gods across the river. That's what he did for Abraham. That's what he did for me. And if you're not yet trusting in Christ Jesus for salvation from your sins, worshipping something else or someone else, God is in the business. You need to know this. God is in the business of taking idol worshippers and making them worshippers of himself. He is ready and willing in Christ Jesus to pardon you for the wrongness of your idolatry, to help you with the rightness of worshiping Him, to invite you into the goodness of worshiping Him. Know that if you're not a Christian yet, if you're not yet trusting in Christ. And if you're already a Christian, sincerely trying to obey this commandment and worship God alone, but recognizing your shortcomings and your sins as you hear all of this today come with me now and come with any here who may be believing for the first time and let's go together to that fountain filled with blood and wash ourselves anew